Now please turn in your Bibles to the book of Psalms. And turn to Psalm 37. I was inclined to read the whole psalm, although our text tonight will be verses 34 through 40, the, the, the last section of the psalm. I, I won't read the whole psalm, but we will be going back and referring to uh, some of the earlier verses that won't be read as part of the sermon text. Psalm 37, verses 34 through 40. Listen to this. This is the very word of God. Wait for the Lord and keep his way, and he will exalt you to inherit the land. You will look on when the wicked are cut off. I have seen a wicked, ruthless man spreading himself like a green laurel tree, but he passed away, and behold, he was no more. Though I sought him, he could not be found. Mark the blameless, and behold the upright. For there is a future for the man of peace, but transgressors shall be altogether destroyed. The future of the wicked shall be cut off. The salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their stronghold in the time of trouble. The Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in him. That's the reading of God's word. Let's ask him to bless it to us this evening. Father, we thank you for the Holy Scriptures. We thank you that they were written for our instruction. We thank you that they are the bread of life, the bread for our souls. Please nourish us through your word. Nourish us and may we feed upon Christ by faith, even as he, uh, the word made flesh, is proclaimed. We pray that you'd get glory for all this and we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. There are experts in all kinds of uh, areas who are telling us, keep an eye on this, or this is the one to watch, whether it has to do with uh, athletes, or this is the one who's going to be successful, or these are the ones we think are going to get drafted, or be the leaders in in their areas of endeavor. It also applies to stocks. The Investment gurus are always telling us you know, which stocks they think are going to do well, which mutual funds are going to, uh, to earn a lot. So there are always these experts telling us, watch, watch this, keep an eye on that. And they do their best to interpret who are going to be the winners, who are going to be the losers. You know, don't invest in that. Get, pull your money out of this if you're in it, that kind of thing. But you've probably discovered over time that sometimes the experts get it wrong. Imagine that. But sometimes they get it wrong. Sometimes they get it way wrong. Or they don't even see what's coming. And that's uh, what I wanted to talk about as an example tonight. Think of the example of the 2000, the year 2000 NFL draft. There was this kid from California who had had a very 
unremarkable college career at the University of Michigan. He was drafted 199th overall. There are only 259 people drafted into the, into the NFL every year. So he wasn't even in, he was in the lowest quarter, quarter of those drafted. Um, and he began his NFL career as a fourth string quarterback. Uh, he threw three passes or made three passing attempts in his first season with one completion for a grand total of six yards. Um, there were six quarterbacks drafted before him in the 2000 NFL draft. And they're all people whose names most of you would not recognize unless you really, really pay careful attention to the NFL and, and you, know, you keep track of those kind of statistics. These are all, these six quarterbacks drafted before him are names that none of you would remember, none of you would recognize. What was his name? Tom Brady. Heard that name? Sound familiar? None of the scouts saw him coming. None of the experts anticipated Tom Brady. In fact, he almost didn't get drafted. And yet, he is widely recognized as the greatest NFL quarterback of all time. Well, in this present age, Christians are often unremarkable by outward appearances. Observers of humanity and of life wouldn't pick very many Christians out as saying, wow, that's one to watch. Keep an eye on him. Keep an eye on her. Experts wouldn't say, she's really going to shine. Or, he's going to thrive. He's got a future. He's going to inherit the earth. Observers wouldn't say that, but God sees things otherwise. God, the Holy Spirit, says in verse 37 of our text, Mark the blameless. And behold the upright. There's a future for the man of peace. That's God announcing to the world, these are the ones you should keep your eyes on. These are the ones to watch. My children. My people. The people who put their faith in my son. Keep your eye on these. That's what God says. Now, Psalm 37 is kind of interesting because it's, it's, um, it's, it's not a prayer. It's not a song of praise to God. It's, uh, it's a psalm of instruction. It's not directed to God at all, but it's directed to man. It's, it's one of the psalms that we call a wisdom psalm because it contains an instruction for man and not so much uh, an address directly to the Almighty in praise to Him. It, it certainly provides much matter for praise to God, but it's not spoken to Him. It's spoken to you, to me. It's a long psalm, longer than, than many, and this one psalm contains 
material for many, many sermons. Uh, But tonight, what I want to look at is three central themes, three central concerns that recur throughout the psalm in the text that uh, that we read for this evening as well as the rest of the psalm. And that's what we'll be focusing on. And there are three points, actually. The point that we see over and over again in Psalm 37 of putting your trust in God and the theme of inheriting the land and the theme of being cut off. All things that are very important for our consideration. And this psalm and this passage of the psalm teach us, teaches us that uh, Hope for the future belongs only to those who trust in the Lord. So the ones that trust in the Lord, those are the ones to watch. Hope for the future belongs only to those who trust in the Lord. I found this uh, statement from Sinclair Ferguson. He wrote, Only Christians can be long-term optimists and live without debilitating anxiety because they know that their own lives and the history of the world have a final destiny that Jesus Christ controls. That prospect influences the way we live here and now. Hope for the future belongs only to those who trust in the Lord. So first, let's consider trusting God. Trusting God is not only a pervasive theme in this psalm, but it's throughout the, the Psalter. Our text for tonight began with the words, wait for the Lord. And saying to say wait for the Lord is just another way of saying trust in the Lord. And it's important that we know that biblical waiting is not passive. Biblical waiting is not portrayed like you sitting in the waiting room to see your doctor or you sitting on the train platform waiting to catch a train or a bus. That's not biblical waiting. Biblical waiting doesn't mean sitting there and doing nothing while you wait for something to happen. Biblical waiting is deliberate confidence in God. We could say that a biblical concept of waiting would be to hope It's waiting in hope. That's why the NIV translates this uh, verse, hope in the Lord. Or if you look at verse 40, the end of our text tonight, it speaks of taking refuge. That's what it means to wait on the Lord, to wait for the Lord. It means to take refuge in Him, to trust in Him, in other words. The opening words of this psalm, if you look back there, I don't know if in your Bibles you have to turn the page to get to verse 1 of Psalm 37, but verse 1 of Psalm 37 says, fret not yourself. Fret not. That's how the psalm begins. Verse 3 says, trust in the Lord. And the reason the psalm has to begin that way, and the reason it has to exhort us to trust in the Lord is because we are prone to, pre- prone to fret, aren't we? We're prone to fret. We're prone to be anxious. And that's why we fret. We fret because we're discontent. We're tempted to think, listen now, we're tempted to think that the wicked are truly happy. And I have news for you. They're not. They may seem like it. 
They may seem to have plenty. They may seem to be enjoying many things about their life and maybe even enjoying uh, their sin and and the passing pleasures of sin. They may look happy, but they're not. Inside, they're being eaten away by discontent and a a knowledge down in their consciences that they're missing something, that they lack something, and that nothing that they're enjoying is really fulfilling. But see, we're tempted to think that the wicked are happy. If they have a lot of money, if they have a great car, if they've got a great job, if they get to live the easy life or go on these awesome vacations, uh, and we fret because they get to enjoy things like that and we don't perhaps. Why should we not fret? Well, verse 8 tells us very explicitly, fretting tends only to evil. Fretting, and you can take this as an application if you want to, an early application, fretting accomplishes nothing. So we shouldn't fret because it doesn't accomplish anything. We shouldn't fret because our God is altogether trustworthy. We can put our trust in in Him because He is trustworthy. We can rely upon Him. Well, what things cause us to fret? We've, We've touched on these things a little bit already, but what causes you to fret? What causes me to be fretful? Well, we tend to get upset about the apparent success of evildoers, don't we? We see wicked people doing wicked things and getting away with them, and it leads us to fret. We see people successfully enacting bad policy in government. We see people cheating and getting away with it in business. We see people engaged in criminal activity and not suffering consequences, and and that makes us fret, or it can. We also fret because we're envious of the wicked. We're envious of wrongdoers. Look with me again at verse 1. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers. We're inclined to do that, aren't we? We're inclined to be envious of wrongdoers. And so the Scripture tells us, don't. We fret because we think that the wicked will win in the long run. And that's just unbelief. The wicked don't win in the long run. So how do we keep from fretting? Well, in his commentary on this psalm, James Montgomery Boyce gives us two keys, and you can take this as a kind of application as well. How do you keep from fretting? Boyce says, look up and look ahead. Take our eyes off of circumstances and fix our eyes on God. Or as the book of Hebrews says, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Keep your eyes on Him. You know, in in sports they say, keep your eye on the ball. Well, in the Christian life, you keep your eyes on Jesus. That's where you want to stay fixed. That's where you want your attention to remain. So take your eyes off of the circumstances and fix your eyes on God. So look up, that's looking up. Looking ahead means taking God's perspective on the circumstances. We start to feel very claustrophobic when we consider the circumstances. We look all around and we see bad things. 
And we feel like those bad things are closing in on us and that there's no escape, there's no hope. That's what our, our carnal nature tells us. That's what our unbelief tells us. Take God's perspective, though, on the circumstances because God is not threatened at all by the wicked. Look at verse 13 of this psalm. God is not threatened. He's not uh, in any way alarmed by the wicked. It says in verse 13, the Lord laughs at the wicked for he sees that his day is coming. You see language like that in Psalm 2 as well. It says, he who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord holds the wicked in derision. It doesn't mean that God is in any way amused by the wickedness of the wicked. He's not uh, entertained or somehow, uh, he doesn't find sin humorous. But when the scriptures say God laughs, it means that the, the aims and the efforts, the intentions and the works of the wicked are, are, are going to be completely fruitless. It's pitiable how fruitless their endeavors are. Verse 13 says that God knows His day is coming. The day of, the, the day of judgment upon the wicked, that is. God laughs at the wicked because He knows His day of judgment is coming. He's going to fall. And his efforts are hopeless. Quoting again from Boyce. And this is about you know, taking God's perspective. Looking ahead, but looking ahead through the lenses of Scripture. Looking ahead by means of God's perspective. Taking the long view, in other words, as, as Boyce puts it. And he says this, It is hard for most of us to take the long view because we're consumed by the present. But we need to do it if we are to grow in grace and begin to understand something of what God is doing in this world. You can't be fixated on the present. Yes, you've got to give attention to the present, but you can't be riveted to it. You have to take the long view. You have to look ahead. Or here's, here's what John Calvin had to say about it. The present condition of man is to be estimated by the state in which it will terminate. Keep the end in mind. Keep that perspective. Know the ones to watch. Where is the wicked's way of life going to terminate? Where is the path of the righteous going to terminate? Think on those things. So how do we keep from fretting? Take our eyes off of circumstances, fix our eyes on God. Take God's perspective on the circumstances, and then coming back to our psalm, be still before the Lord. Or we could say rest in Him. Look at verse 7 of Psalm 37. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for Him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in His way or over the man who carries out evil devices. Or to borrow words from 1 Peter, cast all your cares upon Him because He cares for you. Verse 5 of this psalm says, trust in Him. He will act. Not always in our time frame, not always according to our agenda, but he will act. 
according to his perfect wisdom and his perfect timeline. So trust in God. And the highest, truest expression of trusting in God is to have faith in Christ Jesus. If you've got your bulletin, you can just turn back to the order of service from this morning and look at membership question number two, the one that the days affirmed to us this morning during worship, and the one that each of you who's a member of this church has also affirmed. Question number two, this is the ultimate expression of trust, the highest, truest expression of trusting in God. It's that you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as the Son of God and the Savior of sinners, and you receive and rest upon Him. You receive and rest upon Him alone for salvation as He's offered in the gospel. That is trusting in God. But then this psalm speaks extensively of this this theme, this concept of inheriting the land. Inheriting the land. That phrase occurs five times in Psalm 37. That's one of the reasons why I was kind of tempted to just read the whole thing because I wanted you to, to key in on those places where the psalm speaks of inheriting the land. It's a central focus of this psalm. And I want to consider it together by first asking the question, who will inherit the land? Well, we find the answer to that question in this psalm. And in our text that we read this evening, verse 34, it says, those who wait for the Lord and who keep his way. See that in uh, verse 34? Wait for the Lord and keep his way, for he will exalt you to inherit the land. In other words, people who persevere in godliness will inherit the land. Now turn back with me to verse 9. Verse 9 says, Evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. In other words, those who patiently trust in Him. Look at verse 11. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. Now, if that, the beginning of that verse, the first half sounds a little bit familiar, has a familiar ring, it's because the Lord Jesus Christ in the Sermon on the Mount was quoting Psalm 37. What he said in the Beatitudes, he says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. But he's quoting Psalm 37. In other words, Those who are humble, those who are contrite, they will inherit the land. Look at verse 22. For those blessed by the Lord shall inherit the land. Those cursed by Him shall be cut off. So again, think of the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the peacemakers. All those blessings that Jesus pronounced. Those who are blessed will inherit the land. And then finally, verse 29, the fifth occurrence, well, actually the fourth in order, but we already looked at verse 34. Verse 29 says, the righteous shall inherit the land and dwell upon it forever. And remember, in the Beatitudes, Jesus said those uh, who hunger and thirst for righteousness, they'll be satisfied. He's going to give them a righteousness that's not their own. He's going to give to them, grant to them an alien righteousness. His own righteousness He's going to impute to them through the gospel. And as those who will inherit the land. That's who will inherit the land. But then we have to ask 
What does it mean to inherit the land? And I'm going to make the case that this is a spiritual promise, not a temporal one. And it looks beyond the earth, this present age. It looks beyond any geographical location on this planet. And if you just look at verse 18, it says, The Lord knows the days of the blameless, and their heritage will remain forever. So, inheriting the land has something to do with a heritage that's enduring for eternity. Or look at verse 27. Turn away from evil and do good, so shall you dwell forever. Do you see how the psalmist's perspective is looking past this present age into the age to come? as he talks again and again and again about inheriting the land. And think about it. Who wrote this psalm? Well, verse 1 tells us this is a psalm of David. And so David, in his days, wrote this psalm, and he spoke again and again and again about inheriting the land, but Israel had already inherited the land 400 years ago. And as David wrote, all 12 tribes were still inhabiting the land of Canaan, the land of Israel. And yet he's speaking about inheriting the land. Think about that. Ponder that. The overall perspective of Psalm 37 is eternal, not temporal. You can see that so clearly if you just consider verses 27 through 29. And listen how often the word forever comes up. Turn away from evil and do good, so you shall dwell forever. For the Lord loves justice, he will not forsake his saints. They are preserved forever, but the children of the wicked shall be cut off. The righteous shall inherit the land and dwell upon it forever. So the concern and the perspective of this psalm are focused on eternity. And then the New Testament proves that the the land promise that we see so much in the Old Testament meant more than just land. Yes, it meant land, but it meant more than that. And I mentioned that it's Psalm 37, uh, verse 11, that Jesus quotes in Matthew 5, 5. Jesus said the meek would inherit the earth I think we, we understand uh, from that New Testament perspective that when Jesus said that, blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth, he was talking about the new earth. He had to have been. And if you take Psalm 37 in its Greek translation, the ancient gran- translation of the, Greek, of, the, of the Hebrew Bible, the Septuagint, and compare it to Matthew 5, 5, it's it's identical. It's almost identical word for word. Inherit the land, inherit the earth. Now, it so happens, the Hebrew word eretz and the Greek word ge can both mean either land or earth and are often translated one way or the other. With that in mind, look with me one more time at verse 11 of Psalm 37. The meek shall inherit the Eretz, 
And most of our Bibles, most of our English versions say they shall inherit the land. But read it this way with me for for a moment. The meek shall inherit the earth. Which is what Jesus says. And if you read it that way in the Old Testament, it further enforces this idea that it's not talking about Canaan. It means the blessings of the new heavens and the new earth. This promise is bigger and better than just the land of Canaan. Matthew Henry spoke of how of what it means that God is going to bless people to inherit the land. He says, he will advance them to a place in the heavenly mansions, to dignity and honor and true wealth in the new Jerusalem to inherit that good land, that land of promise of which Canaan was a type. In other words, it was a symbol. He will exalt them above all contempt and danger. And our inheritance is secure in Christ and only in Christ. There is no inheritance that is secure apart from him. And so in Matthew 25, when he speaks of the last day and the final judgment, when he separates the sheep from the goats, and he says to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. That's what it means to inherit the land. The other thing this psalm talks about, including in our text for tonight, the third point, is this theme, this notion of being cut off. Now I said the phrase inherit the land occurred five times in Psalm 37. Uh, Being cut off, that notion, that phrase, also occurs five times in Psalm 37. And of the five times it occurs, four of them occur in contrast with inheriting the land. So we have these two ways, these two paths. The path that leads to inheriting the land and the path that leads to being cut off. This expression, being cut off, is used in reference uh, to death. It's used in reference to judgment. The first time the, the, the notion of being cut off occurs in Scripture is when in Genesis uh, 9, verse 11, God says he will never again cut off all the living through the waters of a flood. The, so he's speaking of the universal judgment that he, he brought upon the earth. He, he used that to cut off mankind. And only eight people were saved in the ark. So to be cut off means to be blotted out. It means to be eliminated. It carries with it uh, connotations of death, of course, but also uh, death that comes in the way of judgment, death that comes in the way of God's curse. Good example uh, of this, a good description of it is Jeremiah 44, 8, <coughs> where God speaks to his rebellious people through his prophet. And he says, Why do you provoke me to anger with the works of your hands, making offerings to other gods in the land of Egypt where you've come to live, so that you may be cut off and become a curse and a taunt among all the nations of the earth? See, that's what being cut off means. How is it described in Psalm 37? In Psalm 37, it says those who are being cut off 
will pass away. There will be no memory of them. Look at verses 35 and 36. I have seen a wicked, ruthless man spreading himself like a green laurel tree, but he passed away, and behold, he was no more. Though I sought him, he could not be found. Those who are being cut off are described as those who will fade and wither like a dying plant in verse 2 of the psalm. So think about what your lawn looks like right now. That's the destiny. That's the destination of the wicked. They'll dry up and wither and die. Those who are being cut off, all their wicked plans are not only going to fail, they're going to backfire. Look at verses 14 and 15. The wicked draw the sword and bend their bows to bring down the poor and needy, to slay those whose way is upright. Their sword shall enter their own heart, and their bows shall be broken. Those who are being cut off are described as being as temporary and passing as smoke. Verse 20, the wicked will perish. The enemies of the Lord are like the glory of the pastures. They vanish. Like smoke, they vanish away. Ruin is at the very door for the wicked. But just as we ask the question, who will inherit the land? We should ask the question, who will be cut off? Verse 34 says, the wicked will be cut off. And it also says in verse 34 that the those who inherit the land will witness it. They'll see it. Verse 38 says transgressors will be cut off. And look at the parallelism in verse 38. Transgressors shall be altogether destroyed. The future of the wicked shall be cut off. So you have those ideas together expressing the fact, the, the grim fact that the wicked have no future hope. Remember, hope for the future only belongs to those who trust in the Lord. The wicked have no such hope. Verse 9 says, evildoers will be cut off. Verse 22 says, those cursed by the Lord. Verse 28 says, the children of the wicked will be cut off. And when it says the children of the wicked, I think the idea that's being conveyed there is the people who continue in that way, that way of wickedness. Because you know those glorious words of good news, that if a person repents and turns to the Lord Jesus Christ, he'll be saved. A person who is destined to be cut off because of their wickedness, if they repent, put their faith in Christ alone, trust in him alone for salvation. They go from a destiny of being cut off to a destiny of inheriting the land. Scripture acknowledges only these two possible, possible destinies. Jesus told so many parables that speak of just basically two possible ways a person can go. You can be a good tree that bears good fruit or you can be a diseased tree that bears bad fruit. You can build your house on the rock or you can build your house on the sand. You can inherit the land or you can be cut off. And so the most important application we can possibly derive from this psalm is put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Trust in him alone for salvation. 
Nothing else could possibly compare in importance. How else can we apply this psalm? Trust in Christ for salvation and trust Him for everything else. Everything. Don't fret. Don't be anxious. Jesus Christ in His gospel is the the remedy not a remedy, not, the, not even the best remedy, the only remedy for the pandemic of anxiety that's plaguing our culture now. Cast all your cares upon Him. Trust in Him. Don't fret. Two thousand twenty-four. The year 2024 will begin in about six hours. We don't know what the next day will bring, let alone the next week or month or the whole year of 2024. But our God is good. We know that. And I think we can confidently look forward to blessings in the year that's ahead. We can confidently expect that God is going to give us many good things to enjoy because He's a good God and He loves us. But there will also be, in 2024, I'm pretty sure of this, there will be trials, there will be disappointments, there will be sorrows, there will be losses. Or to borrow words from the book of Revelation, in this year to come, there will be mourning, there will be crying, there will be pain, all the things that life in a fallen world brings. You know, something Pastor Mark said this morning really got me to reflecting. Because, you know, they say like when a, when some, a class in some very competitive school is beginning or when, when a, training, a course of training in the military that's especially, especially demanding with a high attrition level, you know, you've got the class sitting there, sitting there before their instructors and one of the first things that's said is look around because in eight weeks, the person to the left of you and the person to the right of you won't be here. That kind of thing. And Pastor Mark made mention this morning of the fact that some of us may get called home this year. Some of us, even some of us right here in this room tonight, might not live out 2024. But through it all, our God is good. In Christ, Each day, you and I will be able to say that we have strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. So during that 2000 NFL draft, there wasn't a single scout or sports reporter that could have foreseen that Tom Brady would win seven Super Bowls. It's a record. Men can't see the future, but God knows the end from the beginning. And he tells us who to keep our eyes on. He tells us who are the ones to watch. The ones who have a future, the ones who have a hope, are those who are resting in Christ alone. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that in Christ Jesus, you have given us a future and a hope. May we cling tenaciously to that. May we fix our eyes on Jesus. May we serve you with greater zeal in this year to come and throughout the rest of our lives than ever before. 
We praise you that we have hope. We thank you for that hope that we have in the gospel. And we pray now that as we conclude this service, as we conclude this evening and this year, that you'll multiply your grace and your mercy and your peace to us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.